Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we assign homework and, hopefully unlike high school, try to make it a little bit fun. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and this episode and next episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, Martha and I are taking a short hiatus to uh, retool and get a bunch of guests lined up and get some themes and homeworks uh, sorted out. So for the month of September, we're going to have two short book report episodes. Uh, These episodes are going to be just Martha and I independently talking about particular pieces of pop culture that we are currently excited about, interested in, or simply want to share with you. Uh, So these episodes are going to be a little bit shorter. Uh, In fact, they're actually going to be quite a bit shorter. Um, And we're each going to share somewhere between two and three uh, pieces of pop culture that we're currently enjoying uh, right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this short little book report episode. I just thought all of our listeners should know that I have started and stopped this recording about eight times because it turns out I'm really bad at starting a recording when I don't have Pete or a guest to back me up. So I am just going to launch into this. Uh, This is the first of my book reports uh, for you lovely listeners. And I'm going to start by talking about a movie that I saw over this weekend and Just taking an eyeball look at the box office, it looks like many of you may have also. Uh, I want to talk to you about Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, This was a movie that I was very excited about. Um, I, like many white people, I think, um, were put off a bit by the title, although I say that, and it's actually like a best-selling book, so maybe it was just the fact that I'm uh, uneducated as to the Kevin Kwan trilogy. Um, But the title is very off-putting. And then I saw the initial trailer, which was great. I am 100% on board for romantic comedies of all kinds. Uh, And I I feel like we have had kind of a lack in just straight rom-coms. Like, rom-coms are just play it straight that are just about, like, the love and relationship between two people. Uh, We've had a lot of deconstructed rom-coms, which are fine, but, you know, sometimes I just like to go to the movies and feel good uh, and watch two people kind of discover or rediscover or get through struggles so that they can love each other by the end. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians has all of that. Um, It also is one of the most opulently filmed movies I've ever seen in my life. If you can go see this in the theater, please do. It is luxurious and ridiculous and... It, it is hard to believe while you're watching it that real people in the world live this way. Uh, there is a scene, small spoiler alert, I don't I don't think it's that big of a spoiler, but there's a, a wedding scene that happens in the middle of the movie that is so ludicrous. It is so the pinnacle of unbelievable wealth and privilege. And I recognized all of that while I was watching it, and I still cried because it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, But all of that is stuff that you could read in a review uh, from anyone. It it is a very good movie. I highly recommend it. Specifically, I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, The first thing is that I really hope this is the nail in the coffin for Hollywood believing that movies starring diverse people don't make money. Uh, This movie is currently looking at a number one box office of about $35 million dollars. Um, It is the first romantic comedy to bring in 
or to open at more than $20 million in its opening weekend in the past three years. Uh, it is the best performing romantic comedy since a movie called Think Like a Man, which honestly I could not tell you I'd ever heard of. I'm reading this off of a Fortune.com website. Um, but in, most importantly, it's the best performing rom-com since that movie, which was released in 2012. Uh, and it is the first romantic comedy produced and made by American Hollywood, starring mostly Asians. Um, Dear America, I don't think we can pretend that movies starring people of color don't make money anymore. Between this and Girls Trip and Black Panther, I am ready to put this myth to bed, and I hope that you are too. The last thing I want to talk about, uh, specifically in regards to Crazy Rich Asians, and I feel like this may come up with us in the podcast at a later date, uh, this movie is very, very good at showing rather than telling. Unlike The Meg, which I also saw this weekend, but was not mm, substantive enough to demand its own segment, I think, uh, this movie does a lot of heavy lifting in its visuals. It does a lot of really good contextual storytelling that requires investment in its audience. Uh, there is a scene towards the end where a group of people are playing Mahjong, and I know nothing about how you actually play Mahjong, uh, and it is a highly significant, highly symbolic scene that doesn't require you to know anything about Mahjong. It just requires you to be paying attention to how the scene is filmed. Um, and that kind of trust in the language of film and trust that the audience will do their work, uh, I thought was really cool to see, uh, particularly in a romantic comedy, which is a genre that is frequently uh, dismissed by, like, cinema people. Uh, it's a lot like how people treat romance books or YA, um, you know, all of this stuff. And it was really cool to see a rom-com that was also um, a really... Um, see a rom-com that was also a really compelling piece of visual storytelling. Uh, so go see that. The Meg spends a lot of time telling you stuff about its characters, not a whole lot of time bothering to uh, show you any of those characteristics. I did think it was a lot of fun, though, because it was a giant monster movie, and I really can't help myself. Um, but mm, I, if, if somebody hadn't paid for my ticket, I probably would have skipped that one. Um, but yeah, go see Crazy Rich Asians. It's great. Uh, everyone in it is blisteringly attractive, and I think it is a movie that will appeal to a wide cross-section of uh, audience. All right, so a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine uh, who was in town uh, visiting, we were, we were talking about books and, and what we were reading right now and all the rest of it, and he suggested a book I never heard of. Uh, by N.K. Jemisin called The Fifth Season. Uh, it's a fantasy book, and I apparently have not been paying any attention to what's been going on in the world of sci-fi fantasy right now, because it turns out that uh, N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season won the Hugo in 2016. 
its sequel won, uh, uh, the sequel is The Obelisk Gate, won the Hugo in 2017, and the third book in the trilogy, The Stone Sky, literally just won the Hugo, like, a week ago here in 2018. She's the first author to ever score a hat trick like this of back-to-back-to-back Hugos for her series. Uh, and I have to say, they are all entirely warranted. I have demolished this trilogy. Um, three books, I read them in less than three weeks. Uh, that's how much I've been, like, absolutely, like, sucking them in. Um, it, let's see. She, uh, it is roughly a fantasy uh, series. It, it is a fantasy series. Um, that is, the premise is that the world routinely, uh, the, the world that it's set on has enormous seismic activity and routinely goes through cataclysmic seismic events that, uh, whether they be enormous earthquakes or volcanoes that uh, blow so much uh, sulfur into the air that it causes global cooling, that sort of thing. Uh, humanity has adapted to this and the entire social structure is sort of built around preparing for what they call the fifth season, which is those seasons of uh, cataclysm. Uh, now, in this world, because it is a fantasy uh, world, there are people who can do magic. They don't call it magic, they call it orogeny, which is the ability to do basically earth magic. Um, they can sense, or in the book's words, cess earthquakes and uh, seismic activities and faults, and use the power of the earth to sort of do earth things. Uh, that's incredibly basic in terms of like what the world is doing because what the book is about or, and what the whole series is about is really, um, it, it's about motherhood a lot. It's about, uh, just, uh, parenthood and family relations. It's about entrenched systems of oppression that are so universal that they're basically invisible. Um, the people who can do magic, the origins are equal points hated and feared by everyone else in the world. Um, so they are taken as children to the, uh, basically the head government's facility where they are trained and managed to be like official magic users to help protect the world. Uh, that is if they're not murdered by their families and communities as soon as they manifest their magic powers. So she's really looking at what happens when you have a, an underclass that is used and abused um, and, and broken uh, to become tools of an overclass. Um, another thing this series does is it looks really hard at the idea of should the world even be saved in so much fantasy and sci-fi literature that's taken as a given. This one looks, uh, this whole series sort of is asking throughout, like, the world is, is undergoing cataclysm. It can be saved. It will be difficult to be saved. Should it be saved? Should this world that has generations of uh, invisible, uh, basically like genocide and, and, and uh, dehumanization, should it even continue? Um, this all sounds very heady and, and uh, serious, but it is told in an amazing way. The plot is fantastic. Um, N.K. Jemisin herself is a woman of color. Most of the main characters are either women of color or people of color. It is the most diverse uh, sci-fi fantasy book I believe I've ever read, and I'm so delighted and excited that it's won three Hugos in a, in a row. I cannot recommend this series uh, highly enough. It's really a perfect antidote to the Name of the Wind series uh, for two reasons. First, because it's actually done. Uh, the Name of the Wind series is, uh, you know, we're two books in, and who knows if we'll ever see the third book. Looking at you, also George R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones. Um, N.K. Jemisin got three 500-plus page books out in three years. 
A plus job. You can read it all right now and not have to wait till you're, you know, old and gray and, uh, for you to read the next book in the series. Uh, the other reason it's uh, better than the Name of the Wind series is because it's focusing so much, uh, like the main characters are uh, women, and so you don't get the 100-page digression into the main character learning to be a perfect lover in the realm of fairy, as you do in uh, The Wise Man's Fear, uh, which is the sequel to The Name of the Wind. That part of that book was definitely a thunker, and it felt very much like we're doing traditional fantasy tropes, and that's what it requires in this sort of story, so that's what we're going to include, because uh, it's only dudes reading this book. Uh, uh, this series, uh, the the fifth season, Obelisk Gate and Stone Sky, absolutely skirt around that, um, which is an enormous breath of fresh air. So, uh, the Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, please check it out, you won't be disappointed. I have been watching a lot of anime recently. You have heard me on the podcast talk about how Yuri on Ice is ruining my life. Uh, it continues to do so. I have now watched through the entire series, which, granted, is only 13 episodes. 12 or 13? Some. It is a small number. Uh, three full times, and there are some episodes in there that I have watched more than that. Um, and just, you know, for context, I have been watching this show for a month. Uh, and this is not healthy behavior. I do not condone it. I do recommend the show. Um, but I have also been watching a very cute sports anime called Free, which is about high school swimmers. Uh, and I have been thinking while watching both of those about how cultural mores, cultural norms, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, cultural norms are portrayed in popular media. Uh, both of those shows are not American. Uh, they were produced, created by uh, Japanese production companies, Japanese people. Um, and while Yuri on Ice does have explicitly gay content in it, uh, Free, as far as I can tell, does not. However, the way that all of the boys in this show act and behave towards each other could read as romantically affectionate by somebody who is not from that culture. Like I watch free and I see a group of boys who from my sort of cultural understanding could be in love with each other. Um, however, I'm reading it from an American point of view and I think it is interesting to step back and realize that from the context that it was intended for, that is just how friends behave. It is how young people in Japan demonstrate friendship and affection. Uh, and I think that that is both really great. These boys love each other so much. It's wonderful to watch. And I also think that it's kind of tragic on my end that I have, that there is a cultural, um, there's a cultural setting in my brain that defaults to seeing that kind of affection between two characters as automatically romantic. Like, I do have to take a step back and realize, no, that is probably not the way that this show was intended. Um, and I think that that's kind of sad, mostly because it means it is just one more illustration of how American, of how friendships in American popular culture and in our regular lives were 
not able to be that affectionate with our friends. Um, I would really like, I think, to talk about this for a full episode about how we interpret and read cultural differences in media that originates from other countries. Um, because I think that, you know, obviously the culture that we're raised in affects how we perceive and read relationships and characters and happenings and tone and all of that. Um, and it just has been uh, very obvious to me as I have been watching this incredibly cute show where the main conflict in it is basically how these boys stay friends while also being competitive because they're all competing against each other to be uh, in swimming competitions, um, which makes it a really relaxing show to watch, actually, um, but also just very sweet. And again, you know, you watch it and well, I watch it and I think, wouldn't it be lovely if we could treat our friends with this level of affection and not have it be weird or strange or uncomfortable, just have it be the way that we treat our friends. I think that our world particularly now could use a little bit more just unabashed affection and kindness. Uh, and it's really interesting to see that played out in uh, a piece of media from another country. So stick that in your back burner, listener. We may be revisiting that at another date. Um, but for now, uh, I would like you to go watch free and also you're on ice because obviously. So one thing that Martha and I are both fans of is board games. However, because of the medium of this podcast and what we're trying to do with it, it's really hard to assign board games as a homework assignment. So I'm going to use this uh, book report episode as an excuse to talk about one that I just played over the weekend uh, and had a great time with. Um, I played it a few times before, and it's called Codename. Uh, Codename is sort of a tweak on the classic game of Taboo. The idea is you have two teams of uh, spies or assassins, and they're trying to find uh, the, the rival spies by using code words. Uh, there's a grid of words set up on the table, um, a 5x5 five five grid, where each card has a single word on it. You're trying to get your team to guess the words that are associated with your team. Um, each, each team has some words that are associated with them, some of the words in the 5x5 five five grid are associated with the rival team, and some of the words are associated with neither. Uh, so I, I would say I would give my team a one-word clue and tell them how many of the words on the table relate to that clue. So I could say something like waves two, and two of the words on the uh, table would be somehow related to waves, um, and, and they would be associated with my team. That's a really fun way, uh, a fun game to play. I'm probably doing a terrible job describing it. It's a very visual uh, kind of game. However, what I played over the weekend was an update of that game called uh, Codename Pictures, which is exactly what it sounds like. Instead of a grid of words, it's a grid of pictures. The very surreal, uh, some of the pictures included a kangaroo with stegosaurus spines and a spiky tail, or a uh, person pushing a wheel of cheese up a hill, or um, a telescope set up on the moon looking down at the Earth. So uh, very interesting Dali-esque uh, 
uh, pictures um, that can really get people's mind going in terms of the clues that you're giving them. Uh, this is a great game to play with a large number of people. You can theoretically have any number of, of people on each team. It's also a great game to play with people who aren't big uh, board gamers since it's very easy to learn and uh, not complicated to set up. doesn't take too much time. You can play it for as long or like as many rounds as you want or as few rounds as you want. Um, it would even be a great game to sort of take to a bar. Definitely a good game to have in a classroom or in a library since it's, again, very easy to set up um, and very easy to learn. So uh, Codename, Codename Pictures, uh, and there are many other games like this. Go to your local game store. Uh, like I said, we don't talk about board games terribly often on this podcast, but it is a medium that we enjoy a lot and uh, would thoroughly encourage you to check out, uh, especially, you know, for, for a classroom, for a library. Great thing to just have there in case there's downtime or, or anything like that. Uh, kids coming in for lunch, what have you. Um, yeah, board games. Lots of fun. That's my book report. All right, and that's all the time we have for this mini episode of Book Reports. Please find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are found. You know where to find us. You're already listening to it right now. Uh, go ahead and rate and review us. That's how other people can find out about us. Um, and tell your friends. Get them listening to it as well. Now would be a great time for people to start listening since it is just the, th- uh, the short little book reports that we're doing um, in preparation for the reboot into Season 2. Our home on the web is homeworkpodcast.com, and you can also find us on Facebook, search Homework Podcast, or Did You Do Your Homework Podcast, uh, and our email is at show at homeworkpodcast.com. We are on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast as well. I am on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000, talking politics and pop culture, and Martha is on Twitter at Magical Martha. Tune in next episode for another set of these little book reports, and then get ready for our return in early October with the main episodes. Class dismissed.